Good morning, everyone. I'm glad you're here today in worship as we continue in our message series about how God is a generous God and how we are to live as a result of being on the receiving end of God's generous grace. We begin to live a generous life, and that's really what it means to be a disciple. I mean, that's God's plan for you and for me as Christ's followers, to, to be disciples of Jesus. So that word disciple, that's the key word for us this morning as we look into God's word. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, and follow along as I read that in just a few minutes. Luke chapter 9, starting with verse 57. I got a letter in the mail this summer that really bothered me. It's the kind of letter that makes you sit down for a while and kind of take stock of your life. It was a letter from a family friend back in my hometown of Evansville, Indiana, that contained a, a newspaper clipping. It was an obituary for a guy named Larry. And the note said, you know, didn't you used to be friends with him? Well, yes. Larry was my friend, maybe my best friend for the first few years of my high school. During the summer after my eighth grade year, Larry's family moved into the house just two doors up from mine, and we became instant pals. I mean, we liked all the same stuff. We hung out at each other's houses. We raided each other's refrigerators and generally drove each other's mothers, you know, crazy. We talked about sports and girls and, and music and girls and, and school and girls. Uh, you get the idea. When we were sophomores, we started learning how to play the guitar together. And we spent hours and hours just banging away on our guitars, dreaming about being rock stars. And at the beginning of our junior year, this, this new thing started for our high school called Young Life. And we all know Young Life here as one of our longstanding mission partners, you know, an outreach to teens who are either outside the church, whose families don't go to church, or who maybe don't have a healthy youth ministry at their home church. It's active here in New Providence, Berkeley Heights, Westfield, Scotch Plains. And I was uh, excited to hear that Young Life wants to expand its ministry into the Summit area. And I really hope that all of you Summit folks will, will get behind Young Life financially and, and help them out, maybe extend some of your generosity to them, and, and I can hook you up with that if need be. Just let me know. Well, Larry and I heard that Young Life needed guitar players to help lead in the singing. And it was a captive audience for us, budding rock stars. So sign us up. Larry and I started playing guitar every week for the Young Life Club. In fact, I even have a newspaper clipping that my mom saved in my memory box. It shows Larry and I uh, sitting together on a couch tuning up our guitars uh, at one of the very first Young Life Clubs. It's a little faded and it wouldn't reproduce too well for the screen. But if you want to see what I look like in high school, just come and see me later. So Larry and I, we started playing guitar at Young Life. And along the way, we both heard the exact same message about Jesus. And this is where the story changes. For whatever reason, what I heard made sense to me. The gospel touched my heart. I ended up giving my life to Christ. And Larry didn't. At least not in any way that I could ever see. And that was you know, a dividing point for us, a fork in the road, because that year, along with Young Life, drugs hit my high school really hard. Marijuana first, but it very quickly escalated to LSD, which was laced onto these paper stamps that looked like rub-on tattoos. And the adults didn't know what they were, so they were easily concealed by kids who could just kind of put them on their tongue to get high. 
and Larry went really hard in that direction. He you know, found a new group of friends, and well, so did I. Larry didn't really want to have much to do with me if I wouldn't party with him, and, and I just didn't want to be part of that whole drug scene. And so by the end of our junior year, our friendship had really soured, and our lives were very different after that. Larry barely graduated from high school. He dropped out of community college after only one year. He never held any single job for very long. He went through one painful relationship breakup after another, mostly because of his drinking and his drug use and, and the money problems that you know, came along with that. At one point in his early 30s, he got so despondent, he tried to commit suicide. He checked into a cheap motel, dislodged the gas heater pipe and let the gas fill the room, and then he lit a match. He blew out the entire side of the hotel, badly burned himself, but he didn't die. After that, his life just went from bad to worse. And what really struck me when I read his obituary is that before his body finally gave out, Larry had been living in a homeless shelter. And I thought, there we were on the couch together, side by side. I mean, two peas in a pod. We were the same at the exact same point in life. So that could have been me. That could have been me except for the generous grace of God. Folks, choices matter. Decisions matter. What people decide about Christ matters. Don't ever forget that. Decisions have consequences, maybe not always as dramatic as with Larry, but the daily decisions we make to live for Christ or not do have life-altering consequences. So what does it really mean to make a decision for Christ, to be an authentic disciple of Christ? What, what happens next? Well, and as I've said before, God's generous grace happens to you, but then it's supposed to happen through you. God has been generous with you, and now you are set free to live a generous life like Jesus. If God's generous grace is at work in you inwardly, then it's got to make a difference in how you live outwardly as his disciple. Disciple. Jesus took that word disciple very seriously. It's not just a throwaway word, not something to be taken lightly. We need to listen very carefully to Jesus' words from the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Because he's laying out what it means to be his follower, what it costs to be his disciple. And he sets the bar pretty high. Earlier in chapter 9, Jesus put it this way. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose their very self or soul. I mean, that's no invitation to join the country club. Jesus sets the bar pretty high in how we are to respond to his generous grace. And then in chapter 9, starting with verse 57, he says this. This is what happens. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. 
And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. That's God's word. It's unfortunate that we live in an age when people seem to prefer kind of a watered-down Jesus, thinned out, a bland, kind of tasteless Jesus who's about as appealing as a used tea bag. I mean, no substance, a, a wimpy kind of religious guru, but with no power, and who therefore can't meet our innermost needs, who can't stand up to the harsh realities of this life. People, and unfortunately many pastors, tend to diminish Jesus because they're afraid they're going to offend someone. But the real Jesus, he should offend people. I mean, he did that all the time in the Gospels. He was offensive. Look at this passage. There's no sugarcoating here, no false promises to lure people into faith. Jesus called people into this dynamic relationship with himself, and he required two things, surrender and sacrificial action. Surrender to his grace and then sacrificial action as the outgrowth of that relationship. Jesus called people to join him in a spiritual revolution that required a change of heart that then led to a change of lifestyle, mindset, values, priorities, behaviors, relationships. Take up your cross and follow me. That's sacrifice. Essentially, Jesus was saying, if you follow me, you may lose everything. Jesus invited people to that, not to a potluck or a Sunday picnic. He invited people to a crucifixion. That's a serious call to surrender and sacrificial action. No one would ever say they followed Jesus on false pretenses. He was uncompromisingly honest, and his honesty frequently drove people away. So you'd think he'd be doing backflips when these three recruits show up with a potential interest in following him, in becoming disciples. But that wasn't the case. It's not how Jesus operated. The, you know, this idea of having disciples, Jesus didn't invent it. The, the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates sort of started the practice when he gathered a small circle of associates into a group that learned from his life as well as from his teaching. That's where we get the phrase, the Socratic method, which is the practice of asking and answering questions to stimulate critical thinking. Socrates kind of moved away from the professor-pupil relationship, which was all kind of rational lecture, intellectual. Instead, he taught as a mentor and a, and a motivator. And the rabbis of Jesus' day did a similar thing. Rabbis were these traveling teachers who gathered the best students they could to be their disciples, and the rabbis would teach them from the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus was called a rabbi by some, but his form of discipleship was very different. His style was intensely life-on-life, where more was caught than taught. He wasn't just transferring information. He was molding and shaping souls. He was, he was crafting these future leaders. He was replicating himself in them. He wanted them to catch this fever called the kingdom of God. And so Jesus' disciples saw him in all kinds of situations. They watched him healing the sick, caring for the broken, teaching in large groups and small. They observed how he handled open conflict with the religious leaders and then sat with him privately where he would pour out his heart. It was life upon life. And that's why Jesus could say to them in John 15, 15, 
I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus offered sort of a divine paradox to those who wanted to be his disciples. God's grace is absolutely free, and it costs you everything. Let me say that again. God's grace is absolutely free, and it costs you everything. Jesus said it so plainly, if you follow me, you might get killed. In fact, you better plan on it. Jesus never kind of dangled a carrot in front of people, never made false promises. Someone once said that his call to discipleship was like a, like a fisherman's hook, but without the worm. There was nothing to tantalize or entice, just the hard reality of a sharp hook. Being a follower of Jesus was serious business, is serious business. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer could summarize discipleship this way. When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the gospel, but that doesn't look good in the brochure. So in this morning's passage, Luke puts together these three encounters with potential disciples, and each, each one gets kind of an odd reaction from Jesus. The first guy is bursting with enthusiasm. Sign me up, Jesus. I am ready to go. I am with you all the way. Let's take that hill. You'd think Jesus would welcome him with open arms, set him up as the poster boy for the movement. I mean, how often did Jesus get that kind of a response? Not often. But no, Jesus throws cold water on him. You see, Jesus didn't want followers who were swept away by a sudden moment of emotion because emotion blazes quickly and then just as quickly dies out. Looking into the man's heart, Jesus knew that he rushed up to join and just as fast he would bail out at the first sign of trouble. Matthew tells the same story in his gospel, and he adds that the man was a scribe, a teacher, who was probably used to an easy life. John Calvin, in his commentary on Luke, says this man wished to fight, but in the shade, at ease, neither annoyed by sweat or dust, beyond the reach of weapons. This is what we would call a hasty commitment hasty commitment by someone who hasn't really thought it all through, who, when the going got tough, would abandon his post. That's like the seed sown on rocky soil. Remember that? Springs up quickly and then dies out just as fast. Jesus never wanted people to be swept up by emotionalism. That's not the gospel. And you know, there are people who have great potential for Christ, and that's all they'll ever have. They talk a good game, they talk a good faith, very enthusiastic, but they never reach their potential because their commitment fades so quickly. At, the, at first, lots of enthusiasm, quickly followed by lots of excuses. Does that ever happen to you? Do you end up making a lot of excuses about your discipleship? The second guy is just the opposite. He wasn't hasty. He was hesitant about making a commitment to Christ. Jesus approaches him and makes the offer. He extends the grace. He says, follow me. But the man says, let me first go and bury my father. He had what he thought was the ironclad excuse, loyalty to the family. How could Jesus be against that? He was prevented from immediately following Jesus because of his commitments at home. 
But we need to understand that this phrase was, was really a Hebrew idiom, an expression. His father was very much alive. It was a phrase used to express devotion to one's family. It might be years before his father died. So he was using his obligation to his family as a way out from having to deal with Jesus' call on his life. He set up his family as a higher priority than following Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I'm interested, but not just now. Let me, let me take a rain check on that. I've got a few things, too many things going on my plate right now. Let me work some stuff out, and I'll get back to you. And Jesus is thinking, yeah, I, I won't hold my breath. When Jesus calls, we must lay aside whatever we are doing and give first place to him. That's not putting down our other responsibilities. That's putting them in their proper order. Whatever obligation we owe to others gives way to what we owe to Christ. Even good things like family, like relationships, if they take us off course, then they actually can become a barrier between us and God. Lots of people commit spiritual self-sabotage in following Christ because of their relationships. Dating someone who's not a believer. Oh, you're going to draw them to Christ. Well, well, good luck with that. Because nine times out of ten, they will draw you away instead. I mean, that's just what happens. Trying to stay tight with a group of friends that doesn't support your faith. Trying to sit, fit in with that certain crowd at school or at work or in that circle of relationships. But it's not a group that's going to support your spiritual growth and your walk with Christ. Relationships that come between you and Christ. In a sense, Jesus was saying those relationships are actually a form of death. He said, let the dead bury the dead. Discipleship requires that we get our priorities straight, that we trust God to be a generous God who will meet all our needs. And when we don't really trust him, you know, our thinking goes sideways. You know, I'll take Christ seriously after I get married, after I settle down, after I move into the house, after my career is established. I'll, I'll take my financial giving to the church seriously after I'm making more money, after my investments reach a certain level. I'll take serving Christ seriously after the kids aren't so busy, you know, when they go off to college, after I retire, when I have more time. And that time usually never comes. Jesus was saying, now is the time. Now is the day. The hesitant commitment shows the tragedy of the unseized moment. I will follow you someday. That's what this man was saying. He had a stirring in his heart, but there was an inertia in him that kept him back, a fear, indecision, compromise. He had an impulse that never turned into action. Impulse, wait a minute, okay, it's gone. Is that true for you? Do you hesitate in following Jesus wholeheartedly? And then there's the third man, not hasty, not hesitant, but half-hearted in his commitment. Let me say goodbye. Jesus said he was looking back. There are those who sincerely want to follow Christ, but who are too strongly attached to something or someone else. That kind of person will always be looking over their shoulder, looking kind of in the rearview mirror while they're supposed to be driving forward. And Jesus says that just doesn't work. Think of that Old Testament story of Lot's wife, who after being delivered from the, the cesspool of Sodom, looked back in longing, and her trip got canceled. Jesus is saying, I deserve your full attention. I demand your full attention. 
you can't receive grace and then treasure a piece of your old sinful life. That's like toasting an old girlfriend at your wedding reception with your new bride sitting right there beside you. I mean, that just doesn't fly. Jesus is saying, if I'm going to be your Lord, then you can't be holding something back, holding something in reserve that you might go back to. It's like one of those America's Funniest Home videos of a you know, woman with one foot on a dock and one foot on a rowboat, and the boat moves away, and all of a sudden she flops in. That's what Jesus is describing, half-hearted commitment as a person with one foot firmly planted in two worlds and therefore unhappy in both. You can't be a disciple and live that way. You'll always be insecure. You'll never experience the generous life God wants for you. Hasty, hesitant, half-hearted. See, Jesus had high expectations for those who were his disciples because being a disciple was not just a transfer of knowledge. It's the intimacy of the relationship, a life of personal surrender and sacrificial action. It is serious business to say you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. In American Christianity, there's sort of this tendency to try and make a distinction between being a believer and being a disciple. The Bible makes no such distinction between the two. They are one and the same. Contrary to kind of our popular opinion, a person does not become a believer and then some point down the road become a disciple of Christ. Discipleship is not a call to some higher level of being a Christian. It is being a Christian. I'm not sure that most Americans who call themselves Christians really know what that word means. The truth is, most Christians, people, are not very committed, not really. I mean, that's seen in the average giving of Christians in the U.S. It's tragically low. It's seen in so many areas. You know, we can barely squeak out one hour a week for worship, and then when we do, we're usually late. I mean, I just wonder what Jesus would say about the integrity of our discipleship. Dr. Stephen Lawson puts it this way. To be a disciple, you must transfer ownership of all that you are and all that you have to all that he is. Your life is no longer your life. It's Jesus' life. Your time is no longer your time. It's now his time. Your possessions are no longer your possessions. They're his possessions. Your future is no longer your future. It's his future. Your treasure is no longer your treasure. It's his treasure. And you have transferred all that you are and all that you have to all that he is. That's what it means to be a disciple. I think people often don't often intentionally turn away from Jesus. It, it's a lot of little decisions. Today, will I read the Bible? No. Well, then it's six months before you crack open your Bible again. Today, will I pray? Nah. And then I wonder why God doesn't seem very close anymore. Today, will I treat people with compassion and kindness? No. And then I wonder why my relationships are so stressful. Today, will my giving be what, I, what it should be? Well, no. And I wonder why do I worry so much about money? Today, will my life honor Jesus? I think we do people a great disservice if we lead them to a watered-down Jesus. We do people a disservice if we lead them to believe that the Christian way is an easy way. Because when we do, people miss out on a deeper joy and a deeper strength and a deeper intimacy with Christ that comes when we trust Him fully 
and follow him wholeheartedly, fully focused. God is a generous God. You know, though Larry and I drifted apart, God gave me the privilege of leading his younger brother to faith in Christ a year later. And he took his discipleship to heart. He, in turn, led their younger sister to Christ. And the two of them together led their older half-brother to Christ and then their mom to Christ. God had his people surrounding Larry his whole life to love him after his suicide attempt, to nurture him back to health when he was burned so badly, to extend grace to him after all his many stumbles. Grace happened to them, and then grace happened through them to Larry. They all sought to minister to him his whole life. And I am just hopeful that at some point God's generous grace entered Larry's heart even at the 11th hour. Folks, decisions do matter. Jesus says to you, follow me. What will you do with that this week? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand that discipleship was serious business. Discipleship is serious business today. We are so divided. Our attention is so scattered. We have so many reasons, excuses that we make about hasty, hesitant, and our half-hearted commitment. Lord, help us to take that one step forward to truly being a disciple who honors you with every corner of our hearts. We thank you now in Christ's name.